Amen. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. We have been in a collection of talks called Prisons to Playgrounds, and this week uh, is week five, and what we've been doing is we've been going um, through the book of Philippians. We've been doing a book study, and um, the concept behind the message, if you haven't been here in a while, is this, that when you think about prisons and you think about playgrounds, they are different, but actually, at the same time, not really. You see, prisons have walls, and they have fences, and they have gates, and they have supervision, you think about playgrounds, playgrounds have walls and they have gates and they have fences and they also have supervision. One is meant to be a punishment and to destroy joy. Another one is meant to be enjoyed and meant to enhance joy. Um, and a lot of times in our lives, what we view as a prison, God actually meant it to be enjoyed and meant it to be a playground. And that's kind of been the thought behind this series because the entire book of Philippians has one major theme, and that is joy. But today I want to pose a question and answer it through Scripture that I think especially in our community and in our region of the country that maybe you have dealt with and, and I know I have dealt with is this question that I want us to answer this morning. Why doesn't religion bring me joy? Why doesn't religion bring me joy? I am... Um, I grew up a pastor's kid, and he, shout out to all the PKs, uh, I, I grew up a pastor's kid, and um, I was in church whenever the doors were open. Um, there used to be a saying, like, thrice to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and that's what you did. Like, that was, that was culturally, like, what our church did, and I come from a fairly large church, um, and uh, it was, I, I grew up where I didn't always know exactly what was going on um, in the church. And so when I was five, um, my dad was out of town um, for uh, at a conference or something. And it was just me and my mom um, and my one-year-old brother back at the house. And she told me it's time to go to bed. So I was like, I don't want to go to bed. She was like, no, you need to go to bed. I was like, well, actually, I want to get saved. And <laughs> I didn't mean it. I just didn't want to go to bed. And she was like, are you serious? Okay. And she led me through the Lord's Prayer. But the whole time, I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what I was talking about. All I knew was, like, this could be a way for me to stay up. And so I got to stay up another hour. We called my dad. My dad was crying. My mom was crying. And I was awake. And that was a huge win for me. Fast forward, I remember being uh, 10 years old in uh, what we called kids' church. or um, we, and At that time, it was the end zone. I don't know why we called it, but it's what we called it. And um, they were teaching, they were doing a study on angelology, right? 10 years old, totally comprehended it. I was, <clears throat> I was listening to this study on angelology, and um, they asked if anybody wanted to go outside and get saved, like make a decision after kids' church. And I noticed that all the kids that were coming back in the room after, you know, the invitation was given and they were waiting to get picked up always came back with candy. And so I was like, I want to get saved. And so I went out and I got myself, you know, a couple lollipops and I came back in and they were like, Trey, you got saved. You made a decision. I'm so proud of you. Like my teachers knew who my, who my dad was. So they were crying like at the fact that like they get to go tell my dad that, you know, their son got saved. And um, I was like, oh, listen, I got a lollipop. Life is good. That's all I know. And then it just, you know, continuing on, I, I remember I always thought Christianity and religion, it, it felt weird to me. And here's why it felt weird, because for a season, 
This is kind of how I was taught and how I was raised. If you want to be a good Jesus follower, you have to have a certain haircut. And that's what was taught. And that's how I lived my life. I, you had to dress a certain way. Y'all, the day I wore jeans to church, it was revolutionary to me. Like, that was a, that was a foreign concept. How about this one? I was not, we were not allowed to go to the movies until I was in elementary school. It, just, it was a foreign, con- that, so that's how I was raised, and I just thought to myself, like, this is, this is weird. This is different. I don't, the, the, the truths I read about in the scripture don't point to any of this. Like, my tattoos, I, they've been called Satan stickers before. Probably right, but, you know, it is what it is. No, I'm just kidding. Like, they, they all have biblical meanings. But I just remember I was 15, and I was at a summer camp. And it took this guy who I had all the respect for. His name was Janelle Marry Me. Um, we called him G. Uh, but his name was Janelle Marry Me, and he was my camp counselor. And he was a great basketball player. And I was really into basketball, and I thought this guy was the coolest guy in the world. And we had just this long conversation one night where I just voiced of like, listen, man, we, we talk about Jesus a lot, and I know a lot about him, right? I was learning angelology at the age of 10. Like, I know a lot about the Bible. I, we used to do these things called union training classes growing up where um, we, it was the Sunday school. Before, it was, so we did Sunday school on Sunday mornings and then the service and then Sunday school on Sunday nights and then the evening service. And it was the Sunday school on Sunday night. It was called union training. And I would go and I would learn deep theology at like an elementary age and a middle school age. I was part of the, the youth choir that traveled and went to Daytona wearing polo shirts and khaki pants witnessing to people on the beach because who doesn't want that coming up to them while you're on spring break? A weirdo and polo and khaki pants saying King James Bible. Do you know where you'd go if you died today? Uh, I'm just trying to enjoy the beach. Like, that was my life. And I'm like, dude, something seems weird about this. Like, I know all about it, but man, help me understand. And he walked me through the gospel in a way that I had never seen or heard before. And it made sense. He, He took out, I'm like, yeah, but what if I do this? He goes, you don't have to do that. But, but, but what about this? You don't have to do that. I'm like, so what do I need to do to be a Christian? What do I need to, because what I've been doing right now, it's not working. In fact, the moment I turn 18, man, I feel like I'm just going to peace out and go somewhere else. And what he explained to me was this passage, and it's so timely that we are here this morning. In Philippians chapter 3, which is where we're going to be this morning, Paul addresses this question, why doesn't religion bring me joy? Why isn't religion working for me? And religion, Christianity, for a lot of people feels hard and it feels difficult. We know how it's supposed to work, and we know what the end result is supposed to be. But why does it feel like sometimes it's not working? Why doesn't it feel like I'm, I'm feeling how I'm, why doesn't it feel like it's doing what it's supposed to be doing? I want to start off in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm going to read it from the ESV this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, phone, swipe there. If not, it'll be on the Sky Bible, a.k.a. the screens for your convenience. But Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul starts off this portion of the letter saying, rejoice in the Lord. That's what we just did. We are are glad in God. We have joy in the Lord. 
to write the same, same things to you is no trouble to me and is actually safe for you. What he is saying, in other words, y'all need to hear this again. And I don't mind writing this again because it's that important. If any time you're in Scripture and you see something is repeated, it needs to be heated, right? That's a cute little way of remembering it. But anytime you see something that's repeated, it needs to be heated. I mean, it needs to be remembered. So that's why so often if you feel like, I've been to church all my life and I hear the same stories and I hear the same truths over and over and over again, I'm here to tell you that's biblical. It's not pastors running out of information or curriculum. Like, we have the Bible, and this is what the Bible preach. And it's funny how the Bible has a singular narrative, which is the gospel. And if you're like, I'm tired of hearing the gospel, I want, I'm tired of the gospel glaze, I'm here to tell you maybe you need to ask God to the, the, restore the joy of your salvation. Side note, before we get into the rest of the letter, I think it's important to give a little background of the author. Paul, who wrote this letter, Paul's one of those guys. So when I first got saved at the age of 15, um, I... Uh, I started to like really dive deep into the Bible for myself, not educationally, but personally. So I started to dive into the Bible, and I I really liked this guy named David. David wrote the Psalms, um, and I and I loved him because I could I could resonate with him. He was one moment, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And literally a couple verses later, he goes, but I know whether I make my bed in heaven or whether I make my make my bed in hell, you are with me. Like just this emotional roller coaster, and as a 15-year-old, and as a 16-year-old, and now even as a 27-year-old, like I'm like, I resonate with that. But then you get to this guy named Paul, who just makes me feel like I'm not saved. <laughs> like he makes me feel like a really cruddy Christian. Paul had the backgrounds of backgrounds. He was educated, ridiculously smart, born into a wealthy family, born on the right side of the tracks, born on the right side of part of town, was a high-ranking religious official, uh, which was an elite-level Christian in Judaism. So if there are tears to Christianity, Paul was like the elite of the elite right below Jesus, according to Jewish culture. He had the backgrounds of backgrounds. And this movement of Christianity, he hated. Oh, he hated Christians. He hated Jesus. And so Paul, before he writes this letter in a former life when he was actually named Saul, was actually the guy who led crusades to go and to persecute and murder Christians. Like this is the guy who we're reading from. But Paul went from trying to kill those who believe in Jesus to be, being willing to be killed for proclaiming that same message of Jesus. And he agitated the Roman government. He agitated the religious officials uh, in the Jewish culture. And here's why. Because they could not get to him. Right? They were like, Paul, we'll kill you. Well, to live, to live as Christ, to die as gain. All right, then we'll torture you. I do not compare the sufferings of this current day to compare to the future glory which uh, is before me. All right, we'll throw you in jail. And I'll lead all the guards to Jesus. And you're just like, you're so frustrating. And he's like, bring it on. I can't lose. I'm in Jesus. And he frustrated the mess out of these people. But So what happened with Paul? What happened to a man who was very religious and had everything he wanted? To a man who was in prison writing a letter to a church about joy? What happened was Paul took his faith out of the do's and the don'ts. Paul took his faith out of Judaism laws and custom and put his faith not in something else, but in someone else. In this part of the letter, Paul is going to help us understand that religion doesn't work. 
And maybe this is your first time hearing this, and maybe you've been to church for a long time, and it's starting to click with you, but I'm here to tell you, religion, it doesn't work. It won't work. So what is the solution? What is the solution? Why isn't religion working for me? Why doesn't it bring me joy? My first thought from this passage that we see, um, and I'm going to read in just a second, but it's this. The church game doesn't bring true change. Only Jesus brings true change. When I say the church game, if you're new to church, I'm going to explain what that means in just a second. But if you've been around in church for a little bit, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm here to tell you the church game doesn't bring true change. Only Jesus brings true change. We continue on in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, it says this. Look out for the dogs. This is Paul writing this letter. Look out for the, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What Paul is saying is here, dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. You say, what does that mean? We'll give you a little context to create clarity. We're not just talking about circumcision for circumcision's sake, right? Like that's a weird topic to talk about. But here's what it meant. It was a religious custom to signify that you were part of a religious tribe. uh, uh, You were part of the, the religion of Judaism in that day and age. And so it was a sign of I belong to this tribe, and so people, when, when Jesus came and, and, and fulfilled the law and created a new way of doing things outside of religion, people said you still had to do this in order to be saved. And, and what Paul is saying, those who mutilate the flesh in order to gain acceptance and a right standing with God, which is culturally foreign to us, but culturally really relevant then. Those dogs and those evildoers, who is he talking about? Here's who he's not talking about. He's not talking about the demon worshipers. He's not talking about atheists. He's not talking about liberals. That's not who he's talking about. He's not talking about false prophets either. What is he talking about? He's talking about people within the church that would add to the gospel. He's talking about preachers and members in the church that proclaim that you don't that to have a right standing with God requires something other than just faith alone in Jesus. That's what he is calling dogs and evil doers. He pulls no punches in this passage. And and the enemy knows this. The enemy knows, okay, here, here's what the enemy knows and here's what Paul knows. You want to you want a church to thrive, persecute it. Like, come at it hard and try to kill it. And the most persecuted parts of the country is where the church is experiencing the most growth. The church is not experiencing the most growth in, in, in America. I just want you to know that. It's in places like China and in India where you will literally be killed if they find out that you are a Christian. That that is where Christianity is spreading like wildfire. You want to you wanna kill Christianity? You want the church to die? Add something to the gospel of Jesus. Add religion into the mix. To be right with God, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And it's vending machine Christianity that we all love if we're honest. Because we have to know if we're winning. 
Well, I'm a good Christian. Well, what makes you say that? Well, because I go to church, I tithe, I do my devotional, I pray, I give, I do all these different things. So that, that, that helps you have a right standing with God. Yes, because I do all those things. What happened on the weeks that you're sick or you're in the hospital bed and you can literally do no good for nobody? Are you still, do you still have a right standing relationship with God? What happens whenever you can't help people because of the, you insert the blank? Are you still have a right standing relationship with God? Well, and I think for all honest, we would say no, but there's something in us that would question whether that answer is actually true or not. As many places, especially the Bible Belt, we have fed into this line of thinking. There's a pattern in evangelicalism where we repress sin by white-knuckling sin until we give in. You know what I mean by white-knuckling? It's we, we do our best. We, 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 we try to restrain it as best we can until we either, we either cramp up and we have to let go or we just fall weak and we have to let go and... We don't live free from sin. We live repressing sin. And we wonder why people think this doesn't work. Because God does not want us to conform ourselves to a pattern of religion, but to be transformed by the Spirit of God. We continue on in Philippians chapter 3, and it says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else think he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Good, he's, a, he's a good Israelite. Uh, of the people of Israel, even better. Of the tribe of Benjamin, even better. A persecutor of the church, even better. Hebrew, of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, great. Zeal, great. Uh, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless, great. And what Paul is saying here is if you think that you want to talk about scoreboard, you want to talk about resumes? I have the resume of resumes. You are on JV and I am in the NFL. Like you think that because of what you do and who you are, you think you're good? Oh my goodness, I am so much better. And when it comes to playing the game of Christianity, Paul's saying, I was the best. And I'm here to tell you as a pastor's kid and as somebody who grew up in a church like that, I'm here to tell you, I was very good at playing the church game. Here's what the church game is. I knew when to go down front to make my parents and other people think that I was actually making a big decision for God. I knew at what points in the song when the drums begin to build and the emotions begin to run high, that's when I raise my hands. When we sing songs like, what a beautiful name, it's like when we get to the bridge, like, death could not hold you. I'm like, that's when I'm like, yeah, do you see my hand? Like, I'm better than you. And that may not have been my spirit, but that was the game. That was the game. I knew what to do. I knew what to say. I knew when somebody called me to pray, even though I had never prayed or I hadn't prayed in my in quiet time by myself between just me and God in probably months, I knew how to sound like I had a really fruitful and fervent prayer life. You just learn how to play the game when you show up to church. Hey, man, how you doing? Man, I am highly fl f flavored. Yeah, I am highly, highly favored and blessed. God is good, right? Like, I, man, God is just, he's so good to me. I'm good, man. God is good. I, I'm so, man, I'm just blessed. Meanwhile, 13-year-old me is struggling with addictions and, and anxiousness and depression, and nobody would know, but I've learned how to play the game. I've learned what it, what it means to 
when you show up to Sunday school and you're supposed to have five days worth of journaling done to wake up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning and just write whatever you want to write to make it the small group leaders think that you've completed it so that way you get a free ski trip. All right, like you learn the game. You learn how to figure it out. And you learn what positions make other people think that you're better or that you have some better relationship with God. And you, you gravitate towards those positions and you just, you just learn how to play the game. And I'm here to tell you that playing the game doesn't bring true change. And you're wondering why this doesn't work. It's because religion never works. It doesn't. And if your list of what you do doesn't get you Jesus, I'm here to tell you who cares. What Paul is saying, it's rubbish. This leads to management of behavior, which leads to an abandonment of faith or self-righteousness. When we white-knuckle sin or we learn how to play the game super well, it, either, it leads to one of two things. Either we end up just saying, I tried Christianity, it doesn't work for me, so I'm out. Or it leads to, I figured out how to do this myself without God, but putting Jesus in place of me and my verbiage, but understanding and actually operating out of a belief that it was me who did this. And it leads to self-righteousness, as if I had anything to do with this to begin with. The church game, it doesn't work. It's religion and it's enslaving you instead of freeing you. And Jesus is the only one that can free us. How does Jesus free us? How does this work? So what is my next step if it's not the church game? Here's what it is. Knowing Jesus is our purpose because it moves us. Knowing Jesus is our purpose because it moves us. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, it says this. But whatever gain I had, this is Paul. So Paul's saying, resume of resumes, backgrounds of backgrounds. I'm a, I'm a better person than you. I'm like, who does this guy think he is? Well, according to the Jewish law, he was better than all of us. But whatever gain he had, whatever money he had, whatever clothes he had, whatever car he drove, like, you know, like, like, like the donkey 500 of that day and age. I don't know what cars he drove, but that's what I'm assuming it would have been. Like whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Fancy word for crap. In order that I may gain, if I offended you, I'm sorry. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that I may by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word know is repeated a lot in scripture. It's repeated a lot in these four verses we just read. And that word know is the same word Jesus uses when he talks about those who who don't put their faith in him and when they stand before him one day to get their judgment for eternity and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So if that's the context and that's the same language, let's think about this for a second. God, who knows all things, 
who knew you and your story before your great-grandparents even knew each other, who knew your story before Adam and Eve ever took a breath, but who knew you, he says, I never knew you. How does that work? Well, it's because of this. Knowing Jesus, it's not intellectual, it's relational. What Paul is saying is, it's not knowing about Jesus. The demons know about Jesus. They know, they know the Bible. The demons know about Jesus, but they are not redeemed, nor will they spend eternity in heaven. It's not a knowledge. It's a relationship. And so Paul is saying, I counted all rubbish to be in a relationship with Jesus, to know God. And so it's not intellectual, it's relational, it's personal. And to know God, to be in a relationship with God, that's what moves us. What moves me to a place of loving Jesus more isn't trying to love Jesus more. Maybe you have found that to be the case in your own life. Where we, we bargain with God. God, if you do this, I'll love you more. If we do that, and I'm going to try to love you more. There was one time, I remember I was nine years old, and I was just, I was sick, and um, I, I used to lie all the time to my parents, and uh, whatever, get over it. And I used, I was, like, I hated throwing up. Like, when I was younger, like, it made me anxious. Like, I would start to cry if I felt like I was going to throw up. And I remember sitting um, in a bathtub, and um, I felt like I was going to throw up, and I started crying. And I started like, God, if you don't let me throw up, I promise you, God, I'll never lie again. God, just don't let me throw up. And I, I promise you, I promise. I was like, I'll hold up my end of the bargain. And I threw up. So, um, <laughs> but... What moves me to a place of loving Jesus isn't trying to love Jesus more. That never worked for me. And we like this a lot because it, it makes us feel like we're taking that first step in this initiation with our relationship with Jesus. We like this a lot because and I'm all for altar calls. Like we did one a couple weeks ago. Like I'm all for people coming down front. Like I used to sing the song like, like, uh, like oh, come to the altar or like I surrender all. Like I surrender all. If you haven't grown up in church, you don't know that song. But I am also trying out for the worship team. Side note, I've sung twice this sermon. Uh, I, I used to sing it and I used to feel good about myself. And I would be walking down front like I do surrender all. Do you see this? I am surrendering all that I have to the goodness of God. Like I surrender God. You see this? Like I, I, that's how I felt. But I'm here to tell you, even in my brokenness, at my lowest points, me trying to love God never actually let me love him more. Here's what drives my affection towards Jesus and enhances my affection towards Jesus. It's by just remembering his love for me. It's me knowing him and his love for me deeply. And when I remember his love for me, and there are moments in my life where I'll be listening to a song that talks about his love. There are moments where, I, there was a moment in my life where I remember um, I was having one of those like shower prayers, like just self-pity party. I just made some dumb mistakes in my life and I felt like I just really, like I blew it. And it was in that moment where the Holy Spirit just supernaturally and internally and brought it to the forefront of my mind of, I did not have guilt and shame nailed to my son on the cross. That way you could sit here in guilt and shame. I nailed it there. I left it there. And you never have to carry it. And I love you. And it was at that reminder 
that drove me into a deeper relationship with him. Not me reminding my soul of, hey, love God more. It's, hey, God loves you. John, the disciple who wrote the book of John, and multiple times he makes this statement, my name is John, the disciple that Jesus loves. And that is either the most arrogant statement in the Bible or one of the most humbling statements in the Bible. My name is Trey, the one who God loves. And that is what draws my affection towards him. And, I have, and whenever that happens, I understand I, can't, I don't love him enough. Which leads me towards, like, God, how do, how do I love you more? How do, how, do I, how, do I, how do I do this more? How do I, how do, I do this? And God is saying, I love you as you are. I love you as you are. But God, I got to do something. I love you. I love you. God, I can't love you enough. No, you can't. But I just want you to understand something that right here, right now, though, that gives you rest. I love you. And here's the truth. God's love moves us. It moves us. It moves us emotionally. I don't know about you, but if I heard the gospel every single sermon, I would cry every single sermon. Because that's what moves me. It moves us emotionally. It moves us physically. The love of God moves me physically. It's why I became a pastor is because I understood the love of God and I felt the call of God. And I wanted to tell people about the love of God. It moves us physically. It moves us, here's the thing, spiritually. And it moves us affectionately. Why? Because action doesn't lead to affection. Affection leads to action. I don't do things for my wife because I want to love her. I do things for her because I love her. It's because I love her, I do things for her. When we, when we think about, from you know, a biblical standpoint, God loved you, so he died for you. God did not die for you so he could love you. He already loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not God gave his son so that way one day he would love the world and work away into a pattern to where maybe he would love, for, love us. It's God loved us so much, the affection led to action. And because he loves us, because his affection is upon my life, it moves me to love and have affection towards him, which leads me to live for him. So living for him is at the end of the equation. It's not at the beginning of the equation, which so many of us have been taught and actually live our lives by. I obey and behave to a right standing with God so that way I can actually grow in my love for God. That is counter-biblical. God loves me. I understand his love for me. And because I understand his love for me, it moves me to love him, appreciate him, and have reverence for him. And then after that, I live out in obedience. It is not the other way around. But this is how we like to live our lives because it feels like we are doing something and said it is all on him because of him and through him. It's a part of knowing Jesus. And nothing compares to quitting the game and knowing Jesus. To know him and the power of his resurrection and that we may share in his sufferings. There are going to be days where you know the power of his resurrection. We identify that we are free and overcomer because we identify and live as if Jesus is real and alive. 
We are overcomers. It's what Christ does and it's what we do, either here on earth or in eternity. And some days you're going to know what it's like to share in his suffering. And I think the American church struggles with suffering. Yes, we have been blessed with the freedoms that we have. But I think that maybe the American dream and following Jesus have somehow become blended and we look for ways to end suffering quickly, but not by enduring it, but by trying to escape it. But what if in the suffering God is revealing more of who he is and we know him better because we endured rather than ran? So why does religion feel like a prison? Because maybe you never knew Jesus or maybe you don't know Jesus. Or maybe because you've been busy, too busy trying to escape instead of enduring and growing in the knowledge of him. My third and final thought is this, and if the band wants to go ahead and make their way up. All that God has for us is discovered when we know and follow Jesus. So why isn't religion bringing me joy? Maybe it's because you're playing the church game and the church game doesn't bring change. Only knowing Jesus does. And when you begin to know Jesus and his love for you, you begin to discover all that he has for you. We talk about it all the time, like, God has great things for you. What is that great thing? Is it, you know, $9,000 worth of credit card debt? Is that the great thing God has for me? Is the great thing God has for me, you know, a loved one in the hospital? Is that the great plan of the God? Knowing God does not remove the sufferings of this world, and it's not even our escape from the sufferings of this world. It's knowing him gives us the joy to endure the sufferings of this broken world, expectant with hope of a greater life outside of this world. And all that God has for us is discovered when we know and follow Jesus. Paul, in verses 12 through 16, we're not going to read it together, but I encourage you to read it later. He talks about this. He goes, I have not reached the end of my journey. I am not perfect. This is what Paul is saying. But I press on. I press on to all that God has for me. I press on and I, and I, and I pursue even greater than what God has currently called me to. And God has a plan for your life. He has more than you could ever imagine or know. Because perf- but perfection is not the goal, progression is. Moving forward in our knowledge of him or affection towards him and our submission towards him. And instead of pressing into what doesn't matter, press into what does, Jesus. And when you blow it, and you will, you're not ruined, run to God. Abiding in grace, embracing correction upward, remembering you are not defined by your actions but by his. Remember this. When you're at the lowest of lows and you feel like Christianity has let you down or religion has let you down, I want you to remember this, that you are not defined by your history, but by his story. That Jesus, the God of the universe, his actions are what defines your life. So before you go thinking like what Paul did for a season of his life, I have the resumes of resumes. Your resume does not get you into heaven. Jesus's does. Your resume is not what helps you change and what helps you grow. Your resume is not what brings you joy. It's Jesus's resume that brings us joy. So why isn't religion working for me? Maybe it's because you're the center of your own, your own religion. 
And if we were to take ourselves out of this and put Jesus at the center, which is where he's supposed to be, I'm here to tell you that maybe, just maybe, you'll know him like you've never known him before. And when you know him, he moves you. He's the one that is the lamp into your feet. It's not you trying to light a match and going, I can't figure this out. It's this word of God, this light in a very dark world that guides our path. And when you mess up, and when you blow it and you feel like you've ruined your life, you're not done. Religion may, think, may have you think you're done. Or religion may think, hey, you got to, you know, you got to level 30 in the Christian life. You ruined it, now you're back to level zero. There are no levels to this. There is only flat ground at the foot of the cross of Jesus, who is king. And your life is not defined by that moment. Your life is defined by the moment that Jesus walked out of the tomb and declaimed victory and freedom over Jesus. You think about how free Jesus is in life and in death. If I were to ask you, how free is Jesus from, the, from this world? How free is Jesus in the, in the, in the um, perspective of eternity? We would all say, oh, he's free. Like, he is incredibly free. There are no strings on him. And I'm here to tell you, if you are in Jesus, you are that free. That that same freedom that Jesus has is now imparted on your life. You are free from religion. You're free from the do's and the don'ts. You're free from the X, Y, and Z's. You're free from the vending machine Christianity. You're free from it all. Because why? Because you have Jesus. So press into what matters instead of pressing into what doesn't matter. And who matters? Jesus. And if I give you, can give you any practicality really quick, it's, it's this. Be aware of what grows your affection and robs your affection towards Jesus. You know what grows my affection towards Jesus? Is going on walks. I love going on walks. I love getting outside of my house, breathing fresh air, and just praying. You say, do you just like word vomit words? No, I typically pray scripture. That's what grows my affection towards Jesus. I also love music. Music is my heart language. I love it. I'm not good at it, but I love music. And I love listening to worship music. People ask me all the time, what do you listen to at the gym? I'm like, sermons on a podcast or worship music? Like, you lift to that? Yes, that's what I lift to. I I love it. You know what I have to be careful of, what robs me of my joy? I have to be careful of certain things. I love sports. But if I'm not careful, instead of having and being a sustainable person and being the consistent, a consistent presence of peace and stability of my house, I have to be careful of letting what a teenager does with a little football determine my emotional stability for the night. I have to be careful because it matters to me. Some reason it matters more than it should, but it matters. And so I don't watch sports like I used to anymore. I know I just lost all the men in the room. (laughs) But at the end of the day, if something is robbing your affection towards Jesus and it's making you unstable in your homes where your kids know not to talk to dad after your favorite sports team loses, I'm here to tell you, you may need to turn off the TV and just spend time with your family. (laughs) It matters. 
We are not here to be entertained. We are here to live on mission and to praise God. We're here to know God. And this life is short, y'all. This life is really short. And I don't want to get to heaven and think I could have given more. I could have known Jesus better. I could have known him more. And when I begin to know Jesus, and I begin to understand his love for me, everything changes. So this morning, I'm going to ask you, do you know Jesus? Not, do you know the church game? Do you know when to raise your hand? Do you know how to pray? Do you know what to say? Do you know enough verses to get by if you were to go to any church? Do you know him? Not intellectually, but personally. Do you know him? Eternity is too long to be wrong. And I would rather know Jesus now than get to heaven and him say, I never knew you. And that's not to guilt anybody, but I'm here to tell you that's what's at stake. His love for you exists for you, whether you realize it or not. And that is enough for me to be in awe of who he is. So here's what I want us to do. I want everybody to stand up if you don't mind. I just want to have a moment with every head bowed and every eye closed. We bow our heads out of respect to God and we close our eyes out of respect to those around us. And nobody's going to come over and, and hit you over the cross of the head or do something crazy. But in this moment, if you're in here and this morning and you don't know Jesus, you don't know him. There is no personal relationship with him. There is no I know God. Maybe you've been playing the church game for forever. Maybe this is your first time to church and you've always wondered these things or you have felt these tension points. I'm here to tell you, welcome to the club. Religion, it doesn't work. And those who teach it, Paul pulls no punches and Paul's words are inspired by the Spirit, which means God pulls no punches. They are dogs and they are evildoers and it is rubbish. There's a quote. The only half to in Christianity is you have to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through him. And after that, God takes care of the rest. You don't have to give to be a Christian. You don't have to read your Bible to be a Christian. Christians give and Christians read their Bible, but you don't have to. It doesn't change your standing with God. You have a right standing with God right now if you're if you're a follower of Jesus. But to those of you who don't know Jesus, I'm gonna give you an opportunity now. I'm gonna pray a prayer, and if you don't know Jesus, I just ask that you repeat this prayer either out loud in your head, do whatever you gotta do, but God's word says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. That's it. What else, Trey? That's it. So I'm gonna pray this prayer, and if you wanna accept Jesus this morning, know Jesus this morning, just repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for another day not promised. Thank you for an opportunity to accept your salvation. And I accept your salvation now. I confess that I am a sinner. I am not perfect. And you are a perfect Savior. And I believe you lived a sinless life. You died. And you rose again. And I choose to accept your love for me and follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you, Jesus. 
Amen. With every head still bowed and every eye still closed, nobody's looking around. If you prayed that prayer this morning, would you just raise your hand so that way I can know how to pray for you? That way we can celebrate as a church. Nobody's looking around. Is there anybody like that this morning? Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? I know Jesus now. I choose to follow him. Okay. And for the rest of us, that feels like religion, it's not working. I'm here to encourage you. The church game doesn't work. Grow in your knowledge and in your relationship with Jesus. And as you're following him, all that he has for you, the inheritance of heaven that has been promised to you through scripture by Jesus, you'll find that it's, it's, easier, it's easier to attain than you realize. So God, we love you, we praise you, and as we go into this time of worship and reflection and praise, as we enter into your presence, as we grow closer to you, as we reciprocate your love for us, God, I pray that this church and this moment would be a glimpse of heaven where for all of eternity we would join in the angels as broken humanity singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty in your presence. We love you, we praise you in the name of Jesus, amen.